Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your host, Rick Lawrence, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Hi, listeners. This is Season 7, Episode 7. My name is Rick. I'm author of many books, including my latest one called The Suicide Solution, which was released uh, last fall. So it's coming up on a year since it was released, and we're actually heading soon into Suicide Awareness Month. And um, as jolting as the title of that book is, The Suicide Solution, It is really a book about uh, the epidemic of depression, anxiety, and suicidality that has swept through our country even before the pandemic, but the pandemic heightened all of that, of course. And the book is about all of that uh, overlaid with uh, how Jesus brings redemptive presence into our anxieties and dark struggles. What, What is Jesus doing to help us through that? And what ways has he provided for us to deal with anxiety, depression, and suicidality? What are are some of the ways he's both modeled and embedded in creation uh, to help us through these difficult um, wrestling matches we have with our own narratives? So that's what The Suicide Solution is about. Um, Again, it was released last fall and it's coming up on a year. It's one year anniversary and I'll be doing some more podcast and radio interviews around the book coming up soon. Um, and I'm also, in addition to other books I've written, like The Jesus-Centered Life, which many of you who are longtime listeners to this podcast have already gotten and read. Um, I also, the, the the book previous to The Suicide Solution is a daily devotional called The Jesus-Centered Daily and coming up on the the um, on-ramp into the holidays and a daily devotional is a great gift to give for your loved ones and friends uh, uh, heading into a new year. That's called the Jesus Center Daily. Uh, it's sort of the culmination of my 20 years of writing writing books, really. Uh, it has packed into it um, all that I've learned over the last 20 years about who Jesus is, why he's so magnetic and what it means to follow him. So again, that's the Jesus Center Daily. You can find that and the Suicide Solution on Amazon or anywhere you get books. So this is the fourth episode of this uh, series I'm calling The Ways of Jesus. We'll continue to pursue this. I will record these podcasts as often as I'm able. I've mentioned before uh, in the last two years, I'm also coming up on the two-year anniversary of a major change in my life from uh, my my uh, longtime role on the executive leadership team at Group into a role as the executive director of Vibrant Faith, a small coaching, training, resourcing, and research organization that has been around for almost 30 years now, founded by Merton Strawman, Dr. Merton Strawman back in the day. And our focus really is on equipping uh, church ministry leaders to uh, uh, come alongside parents who are the number one influencers of faith in their kids' lives, but um, uh, also to uh, lift up the transforming influence of Jesus on an everyday basis. And 
We do uh, large-scale research projects in the church, uh, funded by the Lilly Foundation and the Siebert Foundation, and we're developing new resources and new ways to help people all the time. Uh, in fact, my, the home group that you've often heard me mention on this podcast, the group I've led for eight years now in our home uh, every Tuesday night, um, I have taken 40 of the 250-ish uh, experiences that I've created for that over the last eight years. I've taken, I've curated 40 of those and put them into a new small group curriculum called um, Following Jesus. So I'll put a link to that in the notes on the SoundCloud page for this podcast if you want to go check out Following Jesus. If you're part of a small group and want to do something that is uh, drawn from what I do with people every week, uh, I do it with young people and I do it with adults. For a long time, uh, whatever I did on Tuesday night, I did with leaders at group that week. And so I don't change anything that I do between teenagers and adults. <laughs> That's part of the ethic of, of this. We can all discover the truth about Jesus' heart together. So if you want something different, it is a uh, it gives you everything that I use to pull these off. A leader guide, a student a student guide, and a PowerPoint file that includes embedded videos in it. So... There you have it. Uh, I'll put a link to that on our SoundCloud page here if you want to go check that out. So we're in the middle of pursuing the heart of Jesus. Um, that's what we do on this podcast. And we're taking a deeper dive into the way he lived. So when we say the ways of Jesus, it just means that the, the truths and convictions and determinations by which he lived and loved others. So this one, this this episode is called Why Your Weakness is a Strength. No, really. <laughs> so, you know, we do we do not have a love affair with our weakness, do we? Um, in fact, we do we go to great lengths to hide it. It's interesting that in the Old Testament, weakness, uh, or uh especially if it was connected to sin, uh, you only had two choices in the Old Testament. You could either hide it or or you could give up. <laughs> Because uh, perfection was the assumed standard around sin and weakness in the Old Testament. So, for instance, if you were paralyzed, that is simply an indicator that you or your parents sinned at one point, and this is God's punishment. So, uh, not exactly a recipe for opening yourself to a God who simply punished people for their weakness and sin by paralyzing them. But this is a common belief among people at the time Jesus walked the earth, they were embedded in a sort of an old covenant mindset that this is who God was. And Jesus came not to abolish that law, but to fulfill it, meaning to flesh out who God really is and destroy their misconceptions about him. So um, so weakness in the Old Testament, if you live on an old, old covenant mentality, it means you're living outside of grace. And weakness and sin outside of grace are just incredibly fearful. Mostly what we do is try to hide these things. We, we hide our weakness and cover it over with a shellac because we're uh, afraid that no grace will be offered. So uh, the upending part of this is that Jesus continuously says that actually the, our own weakness, the way that we see our weakness is uh, an important conduit for our relationship. Well, if you've been listening for a long time, you know that I live in Denver. 
home of the Colorado Avalanche, who won the Stanley Cup in the National Hockey League this year. And let me tell you a little story about weakness from the path the Avalanche took to winning the Stanley Cup. So when they won, they were five years removed from the worst record in the NHL and only one year removed from when they were bounced out of the playoffs in the second round the previous year. So let's exegete their story here. Five years ago, they had the worst record. A year ago, they were unexpectedly bounced out of the playoffs. Last year, that team was expected to contend for the Stanley Cup. They were the Stanley Cup favorites, but and they took a 2-0 lead in a best-of-seven series against the Las Vegas Knights NHL team. So they're up 2-0, and then they lose the third game. Okay, well, that's not so bad. It's 2-1 now, no big deal. But, of course, they ended up losing four straight games to the Las Vegas Knights. So think about that roller coaster ride. You're the NHL favorite. You've won the first two games of your series against Las Vegas Knights, and then you lose four straight games. It's a it's a kind of a metaphor for how we get stuck in these dark ruts where we just can't find our way out, and it just builds on itself. The narrative builds on itself. Oh no, we now we've lost two in a row. Uh oh. Oh no no no. Now we've lost three in a row. We can't lose four in a row. It just starts to eat away at your foundation. Um, so this year, um, the pattern repeated itself. <laughs> in 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 their uh, one of their playoff series, they lost the they 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 won the first two games, and then they got blown out in the third game. So in their Stanley Cup uh, final series, they got blown out in that third game. So think about the thoughts that be going through you. If you were one of the players on the avalanche, oh no, is this the same rutted narrative from a year ago? This is how it works with us, doesn't it? Uh, we, we see this all the time in various areas of our life. We start to see these rutted narratives that are familiar to us and it's and they're magnetic in a way. It's it's hard to get out of them. It's just human. So the the core players on the avalanche pointed all year long to the pain of that previous year's defeat as kind of the engine that drove them in this year's push to win a Stanley cup. And we're not professional hockey players, but we all understand that too, that this terrible revelation of weakness that we've had, we say to ourselves, I am not going to feel this again. Um, and so we redouble our efforts. And sometimes that works out. It seemed to work out for the avalanche this year. It did fuel them past that brutal loss into um, winning the Stanley cup. But sometimes, even though we've determined that's never going to happen again, um, we can't help ourselves. That narrative takes over our pain in a way over the revelation of our weakness is like a wall that we can't see over. We don't know what's on the other side of that wall. That's what gives pain so much leverage in our life. It's this lack of resolution around it. So uh, on the podcast, we've explored vulnerability as a core way of Jesus, that Jesus not only models vulnerability, but he calls us into it. Vulnerability is really uh, the lifeblood of any trusting, intimate relationship. If you don't have vulnerability, you don't really have a deep relationship. You don't really have a, 
a the kind of relationship that is mutually satisfying. So uh, let's explore that uh, open door of vulnerability just a little bit. So like that narrative of pain that the Avalanche players faced after game three of the finals, we all have our own narratives that emerge from painful experiences. So uh, I wonder if you could take a moment to ponder your own narrative. What's a narrative of, that has emerged from a painful experience in your life that is familiar to you? Maybe it's a narrative that you're, that you're conscious of on a daily basis and you're always trying to avoid that narrative or overcome that narrative. Um, maybe it's something that is going to take you a moment to locate in your lives, in your life. What is something that seems like a common narrative that has emerged from your painful experiences? So I can give you one of mine. I've mentioned before on the podcast that I grew up in a home, um, didn't know it when I was growing up, but I grew up in a home that had two parents who were on the on the uh, far end of the narcissism scale, as I later discovered as an adult, trying to understand my uh, painful uh, childhood, I was in trying to understand it. I, I came to realize where the source of that pain came from. And I had two parents who were fairly narcissistic. And uh, out of that growing up time with parents that were narcissists, I took on the message that where there was supposed to be a person inside of me, there was really nothing inside of me. I was invisible. I was uh, where my soul was supposed to be. There was nothing there. It was like an empty, empty container. And that makes sense because when you're around narcissists, you only matter um, in relationship to uh, what is useful for them. So my story and who I am mattered but not apart from the usefulness I played in their, in their lives. Um, and so it, it gave me this subtle message that there was this empty place where my soul was supposed to be. And so I grew up um, trying to hide and avoid that narrative. Whenever anybody seemed to poke in at my own soul, I would plaster on a personality because I had to, I knew that I didn't have anything where my soul was supposed to be, but I, I knew I couldn't live that way. I had to throw something up there. So I'd throw up a facade or, or something I had constructed that was close enough to, to uh, the person I wanted to be, the identity I wanted to have. But I lived in fear every day that it would be discovered that there's really nothing there. That narrative has continued to, uh, to insinuate itself in my life even after I realized what was going on. In fact, this is my lifelong journey of healing out of that uh, situation into being reformed, or you could say, you know, I bet you've heard this before, being born again into my true identity, the identity that Jesus sees in me when he sees me. And I'm well along the way of understanding, embracing, and even delighting in the identity he's created in me. Um, but that doesn't mean that that narrative, when it shows up, isn't very familiar to me and doesn't cause fear in me when it does. I have to be intentional about the way I respond to it. So, so there's one of my 
and narratives that's very familiar to me. I wonder if you've thought of your own now. Um, these are very vulnerable things that I'm talking about. Um, if something has surfaced for you, you probably have an emotional reaction going on right now um, as you're thinking about it. All right, let's switch gears here a little bit. In C.S. Lewis's fifth book in the Narnia series, The Horse and His Boy, uh, there are two young people, Shasta and Erebus, who have set off on a dangerous quest. Now, the premise of the book, uh, of course, if you're familiar with the, the mythical land of Narnia, uh, among its many fantastical features, is that the uh, some of the animals in Narnia can talk. And so Shasta and Erebus are riding talking horses in this adventure. Those horses are named Bree and Huin. Now Shasta, the boy, has escaped slavery, and Erebus, the girl, has escaped from an arranged marriage. She, she's she's from a, a rich and royal family, and um, her father has determined that she's going to marry an odious man, and she. She knows that she has to escape before this happens. So she drugs her maid to get away. And so her, her maid is later whipped as a punishment for allowing Erebus to escape. So, and Erebus knew this would happen, that uh, if she drugged her maid to slip out, her, her maid would pay the price for her escape. But she did it anyway because she was desperate. Along the way, she meets up with Shasta, who's also um, running away from... Uh, uh, his enslavement. And so the two uh, desperados are on a journey. Um, and on this journey, they have recurring encounters with lions. It's a common thread that runs through their adventure. So they're, they're racing across a plane to find a safe refuge um, when a huge lion appears and is chasing after them. He's roaring and chasing after them. And and it's the same encounter that they've had so many times before. So I'm going to read a little segment from the story. This is from pages 137 through 139 and for the horse and his boy. So let me read that now. At that moment, everyone's feelings were completely altered by a sound from behind. It was not the sound they'd been expecting to hear. The noise of hoofs and jingling armor mixed perhaps with calamine battle cries. Yet Shasta knew it at once. It was the same snarling roar he had heard that moonlit night when they first met Erebus and Huin. Bree knew it too. Bree again is Shasta's horse. Erebus is the girl and Huin is her horse. So Bree knew it too. His eyes gleamed red and his ears lay flat back on his skull. And Bree now discovered that he had not really been going as fast, not quite as fast as he could. Shasta felt the change at once. Now they were really going all out. In a few seconds, they were well ahead of Wynn. It's not fair, thought Shasta. I did think we'd be safe from lions here. He looked over his shoulder. Everything was only too clear. A huge, tawny creature, its body low to the ground like a cat streaking across the lawn to a tree when a strange dog has got into the garden, was behind them. And it was nearer every second and half second. He looked forward again and saw something which he did not take in or even think about. Their way was barred by a smooth green wall about 10 feet high. In the middle of that wall, there was a gate, which was open. In the middle of that gateway stood a tall man dressed down to his bare feet in a robe colored like autumn leaves. 
leaning on a straight staff. His beard fell almost to his knees. Shasta saw all of this in a glance and looked back again. The lion had almost got Hwen now. It was making snaps at her hind legs, and there was no hope now in her foam-flecked, wide-eyed face. Stop, bellowed Shasta in Bree's ear. Must go back, must help. Bree always said afterwards that he never heard or never understood this, and as he was, and in general, a very truthful horse, we must accept his word. Shasta slipped his feet out of the stirrups, slid both his legs over on the left side, hesitated for one hideous hundredth of a second, and jumped. It hurt horribly and nearly winded him, but before he knew how it hurt him, he was staggering back to help Erebus. He had never done anything like this in his life before and hardly knew why he was doing it now. One of the most terrible noises in the world, a horse's scream, broke from Wynne's lips. Erebus was stooping low over Wynne's neck and seemed to be trying to draw her sword. And now all three, Erebus, Wynne, and the lion, were almost on top of Shasta. Before they reached him, the lion rose on its hind legs, larger than you would have believed a lion could be, and jabbed at Erebus with its right paw. Shasta could see all the terrible claws extended. Erebus screamed and reeled in the saddle. The lion was tearing her shoulders. Shasta, half mad with horror, managed to lurch toward the brute. He had no weapon, not even a stick or a stone. He shouted out idiotically at the lion as one would at a dog. Go home! Go home! For a fraction of a second, he was staring right into its wide-opened, raging mouth. Then, to his utter astonishment, the lion, still on its hind legs, checked itself suddenly, turned head over heels, picked itself up, and rushed away. So there is the story of Shasta and Erebus trying to escape this lion who is tearing away at Erebus's shoulders. So uh, that's not the end of the story. I'm going to read you another little portion from The Horse and His Boy in just a second. But first of all, let's, let's talk about what's happening here because um, in the Chronicles of Narnia, uh, the lion is a stand-in for Jesus. It's Lewis's metaphor for Jesus. So the first book in the series, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the lion in the title is actually Jesus. And so in this story, it seems impossible that the lion that keeps coming across their path as they're on this adventure could possibly be good. Because in every case, whenever the lion shows up, they're scared. And in this case, the lion actually claws at Erebus's shoulder and wounds her. How can this be a metaphor for Jesus? This is disturbing. It's a disorienting way to tell a story that the to tell the story that Lewis is telling. Um, and it's it's hard to explain how this this character, this lion, could actually be a metaphor for Jesus. So um, in the next scene, we see Shasta is riding uh, by himself in the pre-dawn darkness when he senses uh, a frightening presence walking with him. And the voice invites him to tell about his sorrows, and he lists all the troubles and dangers he's encountered including these persistent pursuit of lions. So let me just read you a short section here, um, starting with page 158 from the book. Um, so uh, he hears this voice, and Shasta is telling the voice all of the unfortunate things that have happened to him. 
And then the voice responds. I do not call you unfortunate, said the large voice. Well, don't you think it was bad luck to meet so many lions, said Shasta? Well, there was only one lion, said the voice. What on earth do you mean? I've just told you that there were at least two the first night, and there was only one. But he was swift of foot. How do you know? I was the lion. And as Shasta gaped with open mouth and said nothing, the voice continued. I was the lion who forced you to join with Erebus. I was the cat who comforted you among the houses of the dead. I was the lion who drove the jackals from you while you slept. I was the lion who gave the horses new strength of fear for the last mile so that you could reach King Loon in time. And I was the lion you do not remember who pushed the boat in which you lay, a child near death, so that it came to the shore where a man sat, wakeful at midnight, to receive you. Then, then it was you who wounded Erebus? It was I. But what for? Child, said the voice, I'm telling you your story, not hers. I tell no one any story but, but his own. Who are you? asked Shasta. Myself, said the voice, very deep and low so that the earth shook. And again, myself, loud and clear and gay. And then the third time, myself, whispered so softly you could hardly hear it. And yet it seemed to come from all round you if the, as if the leaves rustled with it. So there's the next scene in this narrative thread. Now let me read you the last part of this. It's toward the end of the story. Um, when Erebus learns the truth about the lion for herself. So the lion again shows up when uh, Erebus and Shasta think that they are safe in a refuge. The lion shows up again. And uh, the first thing that happens is Erebus's horse, Wynn, has a strange response to seeing this lion the first time. Let's read. Then when, though shaking all over, gave a strange little neigh and trotted across to the lion. Please, she said, you're so beautiful. You may eat me if you like. I'd sooner be eaten by you than fed by anyone else. Dearest daughter, said Aslan, planting a lion's kiss on her twitching velvet nose. I knew you would not long be long in coming to see me. Joy shall be yours. Then he lifted his head and spoke in a louder voice. Now, Bree, he said, you poor, proud, frightened horse, draw near. Near still, my son. Do not dare not to dare. Touch me. Smell me. Here are my paws. Here's my tail. Those are my whiskers. I am a true beast. Aslan, said Bree in a shaken voice, I'm afraid I must be rather a fool. This is because Bree had just been uh, very arrogantly proclaiming that uh, this lion, Aslan, doesn't even really exist. And then he meets the real thing. <laughs> so Aslan continues, Happy the horse who knows that they're a fool while he is still young. Or the human either. Draw near, Erebus, my daughter. See, my paws are velveted. You will not be torn this time. This time, sir, said Erebus. It was I who wounded you, said Aslan. I'm the only lion you met in all your journeys. Do you know why I tore you? No, sir. 
The scratches on your back, tear for tear, throb for throb, blood for blood, were equal to the stripes laid on the back of your stepmother's slave. Because of the drugged sleep you cast upon her, you needed to know what it felt like. Yes, sir, please. Ask on, my dear, said Aslan. Will any more harm come to her by what I did? Child, said the lion, I'm telling you your story, not hers. No one has told any story but their own. Then he shook his head and spoke in a lighter voice. Be merry, little ones, he said. We shall meet soon again. But before that, we will have another visitor. And then in one bound, he reached the top of the wall and vanished from their sight. So here we have this strange story that Lewis writes where a lion wounds Erebus and he wounds her on purpose. And he tells her in the end what the purpose is. It's a disturbing little thread in this story. So we long for, re uh, we long for Jesus to rescue us from pain, to give us refuge from our pain. But sometimes we wonder whose side he is on. So is this depiction of Jesus consistent or not consistent with your own experience of him? Um, I think we can answer on both sides of that. Um, we have experienced pain in our life, the kind of pain that produces these destructive narratives in us. We, we've experienced this pain and there's something deep in us that knows we were not protected from that pain. We were not rescued from that pain. Um, if Jesus didn't inflict the pain on us, he at least did not stop it from happening. And this is a, a dark and scary thought to us. Maybe the same kind of dark and scary thought Shasta and Erebus had, and they're trying to get their minds around, why would you do such a thing? Um, we have the same question. Why would you do or allow such a thing? Well, what might the high wall with an open door in it symbolize in the original adventure story? What would that symbolize? Um, what, what kind of freedom um, are we offered in the midst of our desperation? Where is the open gate through the wall that bars our way forward? Hmm. It's interesting because Jesus calls himself the way, the truth, and the life. But uh, it's that first description, the way, that he comes back to many times. He's always saying... I'm not pointing to the way of truth or freedom or um, uh, a pathway out of captivity. I am the way. You come through me. I am the gate into freedom. It's interesting that there's a gate in the blocked high wall, and there's someone standing at the gate, but the door is open. So the other question embedded in here is that the times in our life when we feel unrescued from our pain— what sort of impact does this have on us? So Jesus tells us over and over again that our unrescued pain is really beauty disguised as ugly. Let me say that again. Jesus tells us over and over again that our unrescued pain, the kind of pain that makes us desperate, the kind of pain that leads to our dark narratives, that kind of pain is really beauty disguised as ugly. The reason it's beauty disguised as ugly is it doesn't mean that it's not on the surface and in every way ugly. No, it means that out of that ugly, um, he makes beauty. And the depth of that ugly can become the depth of beauty in us as well. The deeper the ugly, the deeper the beauty is what I'm saying. So 
I've said over and over again, he is telling us that this is the truth in the kingdom of God, that this pain that emanates from uh, our wounds and our weakness can really be redeveloped um, and reclaimed as something beautiful. There's three uh, sampler examples I'd like to give of this. Um, the first is at the end of the Last Supper, when Jesus has an aside conversation with Peter right after the Last Supper and tells him something hard's about to happen to him, and he's not going to stop it from happening. The second is the parable he tells called the parable of the weed and the weeds. And the third is this strange story of the Apostle Paul begging Jesus to remove a thorn in his side. Metaphorically, it's a thorn in his side. It's not a real thorn. Uh, it's metaphorically something painful that he wants Jesus to remove, and Jesus refuses to do it. In all of these three stories, we see weakness as the unwelcome byproduct of pain. Contrast the fruit of weakness here with Jesus' opposition to the strength of the Pharisees. So in all, in, throughout the thread of the gospel, Jesus is always calling out the false strength of the Pharisees, and he's always nurturing and inviting the true weakness of those who offer it to them, to him, around him. The Pharisees are arrogant, and arrogance is really at its core a belief or a trust in your own strength and resources over outside sources of strength and resource. Weakness in the way that Jesus encountered it in people was their recognition that their own resources weren't enough and they needed what he had. So let's just go through these stories real quick here, these three stories. And what we're looking for is uh, a discovery of why and how Jesus lifts up ugly weakness and turns it into something beautiful. Um, why is he doing that? And in all of these stories, pain does bring on weakness, but in these stories, how do we see weakness leading to beauty and strength? So let's just take them one at a time real quick. The first one's in Luke 22, and here's, here's the story. Again, it's at the end of the Last Supper. Then they began to argue among themselves about who would be the greatest among them. And Jesus told them, in this world, the kings and great men lord it over their people, yet they're called friends of the people. But among you, it'll be different. Those who are the greatest among you should take the lowest rank and the leader should be like a servant. Who's more important, the one who sits at the table or the one who serves? The one who sits at the table, of course, but not here, for I am among you as one who serves. You have stayed with me in my time of trial, and just as my father has granted me a kingdom, I now grant you the right to eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. And you will sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel, and then this nasty turn in his, he turns to, to Simon Peter and he says, Simon, Simon, Satan is asked to sift each of you like wheat, but I've pleaded in prayer for you, Simon, that your faith would not fail so that when you've repented and turned to me again, you would strengthen your brothers. Peter said, Lord, I'm ready to go to prison with you and even die with you. But Jesus said, Peter, let me tell you something before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, You'll deny me three times that you even you'll deny three times that you even knew me. So here is this strange story at the Last Supper of Jesus telling Simon, 
it's interesting that he calls him by his given name instead of the the new name that he's given him peter but i wrote a whole book about this by the way called sifted <laughs> the entire book is about these uh this this these short sentences that jesus says to peter after the last supper um you can look for that on amazon if you'd like it's called sifted then i did a read a, a redo of that book about 10 years after i wrote it uh for another publisher and it's called the god who fights for you it's a little bit of a slimmed down version of that book but i wrote a whole book about this because this encounter fascinates me so much and embedded in it is jesus telling peter that he's going to be shaken shaken um to his core like you would sift wheat so that the 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 outer husk of the kernel of wheat is shaken off and all that's remaining is the core and what's interesting about this story is that Jesus is saying that Satan is the one who's going to do this, but he's not going to stand in his way. And Satan's belief that when Peter is sifted in this way, that the core remaining will be an ugly core. But Jesus, sly as he is, knows that after Peter has endured this sifting, the core that remains will be beautiful. Here's how we know that. He says he's pleading in prayer on his behalf that his faith and strength won't fail in the midst of this. And he believes that when he has repented and turned to him again, he will be able to strengthen his brothers. He's essentially implying here that the strength and beauty that comes out of you through this process will allow you to strengthen your brothers in a way you can't now. And isn't this so true that Jesus moves into our weakness and even our failures? And the way that he redeems them is he remorphs them into something that can strengthen the people around us in a unusual way. I always say that Jesus needs people that can go into dark caves and rescue those who are in need of him. Um, and he's dependent on us to be able to do that, but he never sends people into a dark cave that they haven't already been in before. He, he sends us into the kind of pain and weakness we're already familiar with. And, and because we're familiar with it, we're not scared by it. We understand that what he has done has brought beauty and strength in us out of the cave of our experience, and which allows us to go back into that cave and offer strength to other people. So here Jesus is saying to Peter, he's going to, the enemy is going to shake you apart. And he thinks what's going to be revealed is an ugly reality about you. But I know the truth. What will remain is this beautiful, humble core. And we know this is true because on the shore of the Sea of Galilee after the resurrection, when Peter and the other disciples see Jesus on the shore and they eat breakfast with him and Jesus takes Peter aside and asks him three times, do you love me? And Peter responds, you know, I do. And by the third time he's shaking, he's upset because it's tapped into this ugly sifting experience he's had. But what comes out of Peter's mouth is, you know, I love you. And this is the beauty of the kernel that's left. At the core of Peter is his, is his undying love for Jesus. Even in the face of his own weakness and failure, he still loves Jesus. And he knows Jesus knows that. But Jesus does something particular to show Peter the beautiful core that's left in him after he's sifted. And out of this experience, then Jesus says, now, Peter, you're going to be strengthening your brothers. This is going to be the rest of your life. 
Let's take on the parable of the weeds real quick. That's from Matthew 13. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Then where did these weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, Do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you're pulling the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. So let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I'll tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned, then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. So here we see a parable where something good is growing up in a field planted by the, by, uh, the, the owner of the field. And in this case, it's, it's God himself plants beauty in us. But growing up right along with that beauty are the weeds that the enemy has planted there as well. And instead of pulling those weeds, the master says, no, because if you pull the weeds up, you're going to uproot the wheat with them. He's saying, if you pull up the ugly thing, you'll, you'll probably pull up the beauty as well. Let them grow together. I'll take care of the weeds when it's time. I'm not threatened by them. I want beauty to grow. So what's true about our lives that we can take from this is that Jesus sometimes allows weeds to grow up right alongside the beauty. And, and he doesn't pull out the weeds. Um, why? Because there is a beauty that results from the presence of the weeds. That wheat growing up next to the weeds becomes stronger and more resilient because there are weeds fighting for the strength that the wheat, the wheat needs. And out of that, it makes the wheat even stronger and more vigorous. So Jesus is saying, I'm going to leave the weeds there because the reaction to the weeds makes the wheat even more beautiful. Let's wait a little bit. Um, so here we see Jesus um, reminding us that uh, if, if we don't feel like he's responsive to the weeds that are growing up in our life, just remember he sees us differently than we see ourselves, that he sees beauty being developed in us by by our beauty being in the presence of that ugly. Let's go to the last story now, Paul's thorn in 2 Corinthians. Here's Paul uh, speaking. I must go on boasting, although there is nothing to be gained. I'll go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. I know a man, of Christ, a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up into the third heaven. So this is him talking about himself. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I don't know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise and heard inexpressible things, things that no one's permitted to tell. I will boast about a man like that, but I, uh, but I will not boast about myself except about my weaknesses. Even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool because I'd be speaking the truth. But uh, I refrain. So no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say, or because of these surpassingly great revelations. Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. Therefore, I'll boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. 
That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, and in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And here's Paul saying that he's trying to learn the truth about why this thorn, this painful thing in his life, Jesus refuses to take it away. And, and what he's learned directly from Jesus himself is that um, that God, that his grace, not his circumstantial change, is is really uh, the most important uh, resource that Paul can access. Um, his grace, because his power is made perfect in weakness. What? How is power made perfect in weakness? Well, the perfect power is dependence on the strength of Jesus, not our own. It's like saying um, the, the better well to draw from is one that's full, not one that you have to scrape the bottom to get drops of, of water into your cup. The better well is to draw from one that's full. Um, that's that's in metaphorically, that full well of strength is what we're after. And the only one who has a full well of strength is Jesus. So here Paul is saying he's learned a profound thing that his weakness and this thorn in his side actually causes him to go drink from a full well, to find true strength in Jesus. And so out of this experience, he realizes, okay, well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna boast all the more in my weakness because. That's how I've discovered great strength in me. So this is the dichotomous way that Jesus thinks about our weakness. Our weakness and our failure and our sin um, are invitations to reattach to him, to find our meaning and identity in him. Um, and that when we find our identity and meaning in him, we find a strength and beauty we've never known before. We, we're, we, we access the beauty and glory of God because we have allowed ourselves to invite it instead of hoarding our meager uh, measurement of beauty and strength that, that we have in, in our own soul. So to, to attach ourselves to his beauty and strength means to experience the deep goodness what I, what I call the blistering goodness of Jesus. When we are attached to that, we truly become the beautiful, strengthening person we were always intended to be. But that open gate, when we get to the man standing in front of the gate, the first thing, I'm just imagining this, but the first thing he will say is, are you weak enough to enter? Are you weak enough to walk through the gate? Are you, have you finally outlasted your own strength? There you go. Well, gang, again, this is um, Season 7, Episode 7 of Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus. It's the fourth in the Ways of Jesus series. Um, and if, you, if you've forgotten, the name of the podcast is Weird and Long, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus. Podcast produced by ricklawrence.com because I don't know where else to land it. <laughs> you can subscribe to this podcast on Google Play or iTunes. And we'll see you again with a new episode as soon as I can get one done. <laughs>